0: So, my name is Ray Belner. in case you guys didn't know. I am uh, an artist from San Francisco, and uh, I first wanted to thank Ann Goodyear uh, for curating this wonderful show, and Professor Jim McManus, who's not here, he's from Chico State, but I think they did a great job, and I'm really proud to be in the show, and thank you for inviting me to be in it. And also, thank you for inviting me to come and talk about my work. It's the only subject on which I am an expert, which is myself. (laughs) Um, uh, And also, Ian Cook. I don't know if Ian's here, but he arranged this lecture. So uh, thanks to everybody for doing that. Um, I'm now going to give you a completely extemporaneous lecture about my work using notes. (laughs) I hope you don't mind. Uh, it's just I think as I get older I just I, I lose track of what it is I'm, I want to say and there's so many things I want to talk about so I am going to refer to notes and I hate when people do that I'm supposed to just be able to stand up here in front of my work and, and speak about it intel- intelligently but um, before I talk about my work I want to talk a little bit about Marcel Duchamp so who is Marcel Duchamp and that's just a rhetorical question um, Marcel Duchamp in my mind, is probably one of the most important artists of the 20th and early 21st centuries. And yet he's the least known among lay people and even among his peers to some degree. But his influence has been really seminal um, among conceptual artists of the late 20th, early 21st century. But he's not been without controversy. I love to read what people say about Marcel Duchamp because he has always evoked a lot of very strong reactions in writers and artists and curators. And this is some of the things that people have written or said about Marcel Duchamp. Octavio Paz, the poet, said, he was a tantric initiate. I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) Pierre Caban, who is one of his biographers and wrote a really wonderful book on um, late late Duchamp uh, interviews, called him a critical rationalist. Then there was an art historian slash journalist named Alex Goldfarb-Marquis, who recently died about a month ago. She said that Duchamp was a failed artist and a tragic neurotic. (laughs) No less than Donald Cuspit, who's a contemporary art critic right now, who's very well respected, calls Duchamp a psychotic, an imposter, and a man filled with self-hatred. Did you know that? (laughs) André Breton, who was the head of the French Surrealists and a friend of Duchamp, called him the most intelligent man of the 20th century. And then John Cannaday, who was the art critic for the New York Times when Duchamp passed in 1968, wrote in Duchamp's own obituary that he was the most destructive artist in history. So you could see the range of opinion about Duchamp runs the gamut. But that's all their opinion. And I have a different opinion about him. And when I speak to other artists who are conceptual artists, like I like to consider myself, it's like we're speaking a common language. And I was talking to Anne today at lunch about this, that, that when we talk about Duchamp, we talk about him like he's our uncle or our grandfather. There's a lot of things that we take for granted when we speak about Duchamp. We understand when we reference the large glass or his ready-mades or etant we know what that means. And so, uh, it's because we have this common language that Duchamp has created for us. Unfortunately, it's a little bit like having a common language like Pig Latin or Double Dutch. It's a language that only a few people really understand. And so outside of uh, contemporary artists and contemporary art curators... Um, he's not really quite understood or appreciated. And, and there's again something Anne and I talked about, how, how few people understand who he is, even people like I taught a graduate uh, class, or not a graduate class, a class for seniors at UC Santa Cruz last year, and I referenced Duchamp in one of my lectures. And when I asked people to raise their hand about who didn't know who Duchamp was, every single hand went up except for one. And these are people in a very good art program at a UC in California, very smart, and they really didn't understand who he was. So, I, But I, I can kind of relate to that, because even though I knew who Duchamp was when I was a graduate student, I didn't quite really understand the impact that he had on my own work. And it really wasn't until I was a practicing artist and I was a teacher that I really understood the kind of doors that Duchamp kind of kicked open for contemporary artists and and conceptual artists. And so, one of the things I did know, though, when I started teaching and making my own work is I I knew what I didn't want. And what I didn't want was to be constrained by any one medium or any one idea. And that's something that really comes straight from Duchamp. Duchamp said, I don't want to be pinned down to any position. My position is a lack of position which is an attitude that's very similar to Zen philosophy, a renunciation of opinion and a a posture of indifference. A Zen master says, the moment you open your mouth, you are wrong. And Duchamp said, every word I'm telling you is stupid and wrong. And so he really, he was very contradictory. He really cautioned people not to, and himself as well, not to be attached to your own ideas or sense of personal taste. Um... Later, you hear kind of echoes of Duchamp in someone like John Cage, who was also a, a friend of Duchamp's and an aficionado as well, and he had a great quote. He said, I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it. <laughs> so. Anyway, I don't really need to go over Duchamp's career. I'm sure most of you have at least seen this show or have some idea of who he is, or you will see the show afterwards, but let me tell you why I think he's important, because these issues come up not only in my work, but they come up in... Every, everybody's work in this room. And I will reference these pieces. So his first most important contribution to contemporary art was he designated non-art objects as art. So by taking a urinal and placing it in the gallery was a radical idea. And it allowed people like, say, uh, Douglas Vogel to take a bedpan, which not only references Duchamp's work as well, but is also using a non-art object in, in his work. Um, he de-emphasized touch and innovation. So he didn't make his ready-mades, he selected them. And so the uh, concept of the artist's hand went right out the window. So if you don't actually make the art, then is it art? That is the question. So if you look at someone like Douglas um, Gordon over there, who's got that skull piece, that piece is a very complex piece, actually, but I'm, I'm using it in reference to this idea about touch, that he probably bought that skull and those are just commercially made mirrors that he put together to make that piece. It's a more complex piece than that because it references some famous portraits of Duchamp with him with his head shaved and a star and another portrait of him with multiple images of him. The other thing that he did was he introduced chance procedures into making art. The idea that the artist is not the final maker of his work but that some of it's left to chance or to somebody else's collaboration. So, a famous piece of his was With Hidden Sound where he took a ball of string and he asked a collector of his to put something inside of it and then he closed it up and it makes a noise. Um, So, he let go of the final product, the authorship, ultimately the authorship of his own work. But also, he did a piece called Three Standard Stoppages where he took a meter length of string and then dropped it. And wherever it dropped he then traced the outline and he created a new kind of ruler, a ruler based on chance. And so you can see that in a piece that Nancy's standing next to. Oop, don't fall over. It's okay. And you guys can see this later. It, it's, it's called Deux Champs. And it's uh, made with magnets and little washers. And of course, I'm sure every time that it's displayed, it changes. So there's an element of chance that's involved with that piece. He also introduced irony and humor into art, which is something that was not so common. If you look at someone like uh, Marc Ten- Tenzi, who is both referencing Marcel Duchamp and Eros C'est La Vie, which is his feminine alter ego, it's, and he's sort of touching himself at the same time. It's a pretty funny piece. Um, it, I mean, again, it's another very complex piece because it talks about Duchamp and his multiple kind of identities, and also it's a little bit sexually charged and etc. He introduced the use of visual and verbal puns into his work, like in the piece um, where he took a postcard of the Mona Lisa and he drew a mustache on it, and then he wrote in. Uh, letters, simple letters, L-H-O-O-Q, which if you read it phonetically, it says look. But if you read it in French, it's O Q and she has a hot ass. And so uh, he was full of puns like that. And there's another piece over here. You can look at it maybe a little bit later, but it's, it's, a, it's a vase, and if you look at it, it has the outline of Marcel Duchamp. And so that's a kind of a visual pun. Um... And that piece is by, um, who did that piece? Andrew Lord. Andrew Lord, thank you. So I, I want to say that he introduced eroticism into art, but in fact he sort of reintroduced it into art through his, this alter ego, um, which he called eros c'est la vie, R-R-O-S-E. So instead of rose, it's eros. Eros is love, so love is life, c'est la vie. He used language and ideas as materials in art which is something that people haven't done. And if you look at this piece by David Hammons, it it reads on the outside as the Holy Bible, and it's all bound in leather. And if you open it up, what it is is the catalogue raisonne of Marcel Duchamp. And so what he's saying here is that Duchamp is like the god of all conceptual artists, which I believe in, of course. He negated the romantic myth of the male artist as genius, which is also something that was quite prevalent with through the modern period. If you look at that piece by Morimura right there, that's a kind of a takeoff on Duchamp's own portrait of uh, Eros La Vie. And so he's, but what he's doing here, which is interesting, is he's showing you what Duchamp didn't show you in his portrait. Duchamp's portrait, he's got these very feminine hands with this clearly masculine face dressed up as a woman, but they're not his hands. They're the hands of the girlfriend of his friend Francis Pacabia. And so Morimur is having a woman's hands there, but he's actually holding them up. So he kind of lets you in on the joke and how Duchamp made his own work. But it's, again, sort of mocking this concept of the, the great male artist as genius. So, and as you will see in this exhibition, as you walk through it, the other main thing that Duchamp did, which is a great, has done a great service to contemporary art and certain contemporary artists, is that he used and promoted his own image as part of his art practice. And that's evident in, in pieces like uh, the Jonathan Sandloffer where he's showing Duchamp in his journal, which he signed R. Mutt and Duchamp as his uh, alter ego, Eros C'est La Vie. So thanks to Duchamp, um, I've been able to, in my own work, use a variety of unusual materials. Um, things like water, oil, wax, salt, urine, mud... Clothing, plant, food, live animals, neon, U.S. currency, and all kinds of stolen objects and things taken off the Internet. And for me, um, uh, those works have taken many different forms. Um, I've done sculpture and installation. I've done digital projects. This is a a digital piece that I made for this show. Um, installations, public art, prints, performance-based pieces. So for me, the way that I work is either the idea can dictate the materials that I use um, or the materials become the message themselves. And it's kind of nice that I have this portrait of Duchamp, which is a, a digital print, and then this other portrait that's made with plaster and money dust, because in, in one hand, and I'll talk about these in a, in a minute a little bit more, really the idea drove the materials, and here really the material is kind of the message. And so it, it, there's both ways of working sort of exhibited here. So um, so I've done, and, and, and some of my ideas have, you know, been inspired by, the like I said, the materials that I've used. I did for years a body of work. Um, that was about male identity and corporate culture and conformity. and It was kind of because I became interested in used business clothing, which I had acquired. So I did a whole series of works on that. The other thing that I did for many years is I worked with um, sewn U.S. currency. And what I did was, um, I guess I was inspired by the fact that uh, as an artist and as a teacher and as an art appraiser, which I also do, um, I was o- often asked to talk about artwork based on its economic value. And that really offended me as a visual artist that people only wanted to talk about the economic value of a, of a, of a work of visual art. And, um, and I wanted to always talk about its historic value or its social value or it's just it, maybe its intrinsic value. Um, so I started to think about blue chip art and how, how it really is talked about in terms of what its uh, economic value is. And I thought that maybe if I were to take some of that blue chip art and remake it out of money, then we could take that conversation and put it right up front. And, we could, and once you talk about that, then you can start talking about all the rest of what makes that work kind of interesting. So I did a body of work I call Counterfeit. And the work was real, Uh, The the money was real, sorry, but the actual work was sort of counterfeit. It was all reproductions of 20th century masterpieces. And I did things like Jasper John's Three Flags and Andy Warhol's Maryland. But of course, the first piece in that series that I started with was Duchamp's Urinal. And so um, he named his urinal Fountain, and I called mine Pilavi, which is based on his alter ego. So Pilavi would mean, instead of... Uh, eros c'est la vie Pi la vie Pi's is life so um, you know and I, and, I, and I like Duchamp I used a lot of puns in titling the work um, I did Picasso's Weeping Woman out of money and I called it All the Way to the Bank I did a Joseph Boy's suit based on his felt suit pieces that he did and I called it of course Gelt suit uh, which is money um, Man Ray did a wonderful little piece. It's an iron. It has these tacks in it, and it's a great surrealist object, and it's called cadeau or gift, and mine was called, of course, a cash gift. Um, so I worked on that for many years, and, and the irony of that body of work was, even though I was commenting on the commodification of art, that body of work was wildly successful, and I sold almost every <laughs> single piece that I made. And uh, I found that interesting for a couple of reasons. One was, well, of course, I think that everybody has an interesting and problematic relationship to money in this society, probably most every society. But also, I, I found it interesting that if I took a dollar bill and I destroyed it by cutting it up, and so it lost its value, and then I sewed it back together into something that looked like an image, it increased its value. Face value many, many times over. So people would always come up to me, how much did it cost to make that piece? And I'd say $300, and they're like, oh, you cut up $300? I'm like, well, you know, the piece is worth whatever, exponentially more than $300. That also inspired me as an artist because it made me realize that the one thing that artists do is that they imbue base materials with value, like an alchemist, that we take ground up money, or plaster, or paper, or photographic materials, and we manipulate them in a way that create real meaning and thus value. And uh, it's like alchemy. And I, and, I, and I have been consistently impressed with my ability to mint money by making art. Um, and it gave me a lot of hope, it made me keep making work, both because it financially supported me and it gave me a lot of uh, joy to be paid. Um. So, but like many artists, what I wanted to talk about was really limitations—how artwork comes out of limitations—and that sort of directly relates to these pieces. And and uh, by the way, if I just am one long run-on sentence, feel free to just interrupt me and ask me a question because there may be a reference I'm making that you're not getting, or I'm talking too fast, or whatever. But I wanted to talk about it, about limitations, because it does actually directly relate to these two pieces that are in this show. So, when I had a full time tenure track teaching job, I had almost no time to be in the studio. And I realized that I needed to have some kind of studio practice, I needed to be making or doing something that related to art. I needed to be able to make work while I was driving to and from my job, which was this three-hour commute. I needed to be able to make art when I was in bed with my computer or in my office before or after I met with students. I needed to somehow continue to make make something. And so I came up with two bodies of work, and I'll briefly describe them. One was called Hot, and it was all based on Internet porn. Or, as my wife likes to say, it's how Ray turns his daily activities into art. (laughs) LAUGHTER But but really, it came about through making these counterfeit pieces because I was researching a lot of the images of these blue-chip artists. I was looking one day for um, an Andy Warhol Maryland print because what I would do was I would take them off the Internet, print them onto uh, transparent material, and then blow them up and then make the patterns from them because I was trying to make them to the exact scale and dimensions of the real real pieces that I was um, appropriating. I found a Warhol image um, in... embedded in the background of of an amateur porn image. And it made me think about the value of art, how we value art, how other people value art. Like some people, the people who made this picture obviously didn't understand who Warhol was. To them, it was a picture of Marilyn Monroe and they needed it for the background of their porn shot. And so I thought, well, maybe there's more of that out there. And so I set off on this great journey through internet porn to find more examples of where famous artworks came up in the backgrounds of these porn sites. And then what I would do was I'd take those little images blown up really big, which would pixelate them and make them very, very blurry, but I would cut out all of the purient stuff. So just to focus on the backgrounds. And so you might see a knee, you might see a head, you would never see anything, any part of a body. Uh, any any full part of a body or the, the wrong part of a body. So it was really pornless porn. Um, and it was really about sort of highlighting the art and, and de-emphasizing uh, the naughty bits. So keep that in mind. That's, so that's one body of work that I made. And I could do that. And the reason why I did that was I could do that anywhere. I could do that when I was... At home, I could do that in my office. I can just surf and download images. And then the output was very easy. And so that was one way to keep my mind working and to keep uh, a practice of some sort of, of thinking about and looking at art. So the other practice I started doing at that time was I started to appropriate small, valueless objects from my friends' homes. Some might call it stealing. but I thought of it as collecting objects that I could make into small sculptures or assemblages. And I called that the body of work items I have taken from people that I know, because that's what it was. And uh, what I would do is collect a whole bunch of one thing. It could be spoons or balls or matchbooks or lighters or handcuffs in some cases um, that I found. I don't know who would have those in their homes. Um, And then I would uh, put them together in these assemblages and in order to disguise all the actual elements and to sort of homogenize the objects, I um, came up with a way of covering them with ground money dust, flocking them essentially. It's because I had a lot of scraps left over from my counterfeit work. And so that's kind of the The thing that I used in this piece here. And um, I continue to make these um, items that I have taken assemblages, and and that makes people worried when they invite me to their house for dinner. Um, But I wanted to bring that up because that idea of taking the leftover, even the little tiny bits of money that was left over from my other body of work, and then grinding it up into dust... Um, is something that is carried over into another body of work. And so, this is a piece that I did. It's a little bit related to the counterfeit because it is a reproduction, an homage, a replica of Duchamp's famous piece called With My Tongue in My Cheek. And what Duchamp did was do a self-portrait where part of it, and you're welcome to come up and and get a little closer, guys. Um, He cast his own cheek in plaster. I think... He put a walnut in his cheek to make it look like he had his tongue in his cheek. And so, uh, in keeping with the counterfeit sort of protocol, I found out what its size was, and I made a a pattern for it based on the original, and then I cast my own cheek out of plaster. And then, since I'm not sewing this out of actual currency, like the other ones are all made out of sewn money, this is using the ground dust as a flocking. And also in keeping with Duchamp, what I wanted to do was to play with the, co- the concept of language. If you translate with my tongue in my cheek, it comes out to be avec ma langue dans ma joue. But long could mean language or long could be tongue, right? And joue could be, if it's spelled one way, could be your cheek or it could be a game. And so I called mine with my language and my game. And it's just a way to play with language like Duchamp did and to, to, to have fun with that idea of the double entendre. Um, So that's one piece that I I did for the show. Okay, and so I'm continuing to make these little Duchamp sculptures. Later in his life, he did a series of kind of erotic, um, smaller sculptures, female fig leaf, objet um, d'art, wedge of chastity. These are all older Duchamp pieces. He, he, you know, he was mostly known for a period of art making between about 1915 and maybe the early 40s. But in the 50s and 60s, he made these other objects that are very curious and, and they talk about feminine and masculine sexuality and they're, they're really more complex than I think people have really given them, given them uh, time for. So I've been remaking them in this same kind of way, making them to the exact scale and dimensions and then flocking them so that's one piece. And so the other piece in the show that I wanted to talk about that directly relates to the HOT project, the kind of internet mining of images, is this piece called Tufé. And Tufé means ready-made in French, and Duchamp is known for his ready mates taking an object without manipulation or very little manipulation and putting it on display And so for me, what Tuffet means, it means really I I went to the internet and found images already made for me. And they were all famous portraits of Duchamp from history. And some of them were taken by Irving Penn or Mon Ray or other lesser-known photographers. But but embedded in this image or uh, incorporated in this image are 25 of the most famous black-and-white photographs of him throughout his life from about 19... 15 to about 1968. And it's a very, it's a very simple thing that I did. I, I simply went to the internet and I googled Duchamp and I, and I picked the 25 of the pieces that just resonated with me. And then I just squished them all together. If anyone knows how to use Photoshop, you just layer them. And by manipulating the density and the transparency of them, I ended up with something that that I think you can look at a long time and see multiple images. And Duchamp himself was interested and even though he you know claimed to give up painting cuz he didn't like retinal art he wanted to put art in the service of the mind right he made art that was specifically about how the eye and the mind work together he made those roto reliefs and then he was also fascinated in this idea of he didn't call it that then but lenticular photography where you look at something one way and it's one image and you look at it the other way and it's another image kind of like you know mexican votives or stuff like that so this, I was trying to make a piece that was similar, but without using so much technology, just that if you spend enough time with it, you start to see, you know, Rose Célavie or Portraits of Duchamp or the Monte Carlo Bond piece where he's got soap in his hair and it's kind of made into horns. But it's, it's a piece that you need to spend a little time with. And fait also, to me, uh, references to me the, the, the phrase tout à fait, which means absolutely or completely and so while I don't think this is the absolute final definitive portrait of Duchamp or the most complete though, but it is sort of my attempt to really create something that's really multifaceted, it's sort of multifaceted and ambiguous as Duchamp was himself. Because part of the mystique of Duchamp, I think the thing that makes him so endlessly interesting to contemporary critics, curators and artists, is that there's no one way to peg him. He, he would contradict himself constantly. He would say one thing about his work and then another thing. And so it left open all these great interpretations of his work. And so he's become a kind of a blank wall, a kind of a Zen master that doesn't talk, right, that doesn't speak, that you can hang your own ideas onto. And that's what I think has made his work so resonant and has kept us looking at it and thinking about it, you know, 40 years after his death. And uh, probably continuing even longer than that. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> I have nothing more to say, and I am saying it. Uh, no, but if you guys have questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Don't clap, please, don't clap. Well, you know, what's interesting about Duchamp, and I'm I'm coming up on my 30th high school anniversary, and I got an email from a woman named Esther Jobrack, who was the art club president when I was in high school. And I was the art club vice president. (laughs) And Esther used to talk endlessly about Dada and Duchamp. And I'm like, who is that, and who cares? And that was my first exposure to at least the name and some of the work. And then, you know, anyone who takes a contemporary art history class will hear about him. Although I'm shocked that my UC Santa Cruz students didn't know who he was. That's unforgivable. But this is the thing about Duchamp. They might have heard about him and it just went right out of their head. I'm going to curate a show. I live in San Francisco and I'm on the board of this organization called the San Jose, Museum of Con- uh, San Jose Institute of Contemporary Art. And I've been threatening to curate a show called Who is Marcel Duchamp and Why Should I Care? <laughs> because that's kind of the general public's thought about him. So. Anu. Did you have a moment in your own art-making trajectory where you also gave up a art or made a decision? Yes. Well, I had my undergraduate degree in painting and printmaking, and about my senior year, I was done with it. I was like, oh, there's really not much, not that painting is dead, but there's not much more for me to say. But also, I feel like I'm more of a maker than an image maker, and I think painters make images, and sculptors make things. And I much, like, I much prefer like a direct experience of materials than something mediated by the frame of a painting. And so I, yeah, I stopped, even though I got a degree in painting and printmaking, I didn't do one painting or print my entire senior year of college. So I ended up being a sculptor and then making installations. And I still never really thought about Duchamp until I started teaching, and then I started really looking looking back at my art history and going, damn, that guy really helped me out. Oh, so why wasn't it his? Like, do it exactly like him? Yeah. Um, well, it's an homage, right? This isn't so much a counterfeit piece like those other ones where I'm really ripping off and appropriating those people's work. This is really a loving homage, and so I wanted to place myself in his face, for lack of a better word, shoes. Um, And since he's not around for me to cast his cheek, I needed to use someone as a model. So it seemed just really normal that I would use my own body in it. But really, you know, um, one of the things that I also think about with those counterfeit pieces is not just that you know, alchemical process of turning base materials into valuable materials, but part of that project for me was a trip down art history memory lane because I redid everything from the urinal all the way up to like Barbara Kruger. And so in remaking artists' work, I mean, the old-fashioned way of learning how to paint in the academy was your teacher would sit you in front of a famous classical painting and you would draw it and then paint it and try to copy what they did. And that sounds really dated in art schools now. Nobody does that. But there's real value in that, to really try to emulate the working methodology of an artist that's important. And so the thing that I learned in doing that is I learned how people made their work by making their work. I also learned about how we have so little first-hand knowledge of historical art, like we know most of it through reproduction, because, and I know this, why do I know this? Has anybody ever seen the Mona Lisa in person? Yes. How did you feel when you finally saw it? Disappointed. Yes. Why? It's so small. Yes. So exactly. It's, it's, there's a great example in this show. There is a Polaroid that Man Ray did of Duchamp later in his life in a wig, and it's kind of a takeoff on the C'est la vie thing. And I was looking at it in the catalog last night going, damn, I never saw that. That's really good. I really like that. And then Anne pointed out to me, and it's really tiny and dark. And it's like, what? And so we forget that we, when we only experience something in reproduction, we have no sense of our physical relationship to it. And that's so important, especially for sculptors. So when I first saw a Brancusi in person, a Brancusi bird in space, which is like the classic modernist, you know, beautiful milled, you know, stainless steel or bronze, depending on what he did it in, shiny kind of streak that looks like a bird taking off into space. It's like 1920 or something. It's this tall. It's so wee and so minor. And so I learned something about that, That just historically, that a sense of scale wasn't quite as important to artists from the early modern period as they are now. But in making, getting back to this, and making Duchamp's piece for myself... I learned something about his process. I learned that he put a walnut in his cheek to accentuate the idea that he has a tongue in his cheek. He's got these little nails. I don't know in the original, because I've never seen the original in person. He's got these four little tacks, which I think adheres the paper to some kind of backing board. So I incorporated that as well. I tried to make it as close as possible. And he, even, he drew with pencil the rest of his portrait, so I tried to do the same thing. But So yeah, that's... That's why. You quoted some uh, various opinions at the beginning of your presentation. Yeah. Do you have any insight into why the one individual thought that he was a failed artist and a psychotic? <laughs> <laughs> because there is a school of thought among lay people and unfortunately among many art critics like John Hughes or Donald Cuspit, that people who do conceptually based work who don't make their own work with their own hands, whose work is primarily cerebral, intellectual, that there's something suspect about that, that, um, you're, that those artists are pulling the wool over people's eyes. And what makes it even more galling to people like that is that when they hear that Duchamp's urinal might have sold in an auction for a couple of million dollars, and they just go, see, see, it's a complete scam. <laughs> And I don't know, you know, when people tell me that, you know, I get a lot of this from students because they, you know, they haven't actually practiced art making as a a profession yet, but they always say, well, it's cheating if somebody manufactures part of your work for you or whatever. And I always say, well, have you ever heard of an architect? What architect has actually gotten the hammer out and built their damn buildings? There are always going to be some craft people that are going to mediate the idea of some artists, many artists, in fact, that just is an idea that's finally bleeding over into the visual arts, and most contemporary artists have no problem with that. But there is this faction of artists and lay people and critics who, who think that there's some kind of psychological reason why Duchamp did that. Like he, Some people have even gone as far, I mean, these are only some of the, the tip of the iceberg what people said about Duchamp, but some people have said that Duchamp's turn away from painting into these kind of conceptually based pieces was because He had an unrealized incestuous love of his sister, and that somehow psychologically that just threw him off a painting, or that he's because his brothers were also great and well-known painters and sculptors that he couldn't compete with them, and so he gave it up. He's ah screw it, I can't be as good as them, so I'm gonna take this urinal and put it on display. It's like these crazy ideas, and. And, of course, it's because they have not examined his whole career or interviews with him or talked to other artists who see the work that he did as being very groundbreaking. But I just laugh. I mean, it's kind of silly stuff. You can hear it all the time on the radio now. If you ever listen to talk radio, you'll hear stuff like that and worse about art and about politics all the time. Question? Sorry, I think I ruined my... Okay, good. I don't want to take my thing out of there. Does the um, school of critic yeah. have to take the same approach? To oh, yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's two two things. Like, John Cage is known for many interesting pieces of work, but one in particular, in case people don't know, it's a, it's a, um, a composition called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, where a performer comes on stage with a a piece of music and then plays three sections of a piece that's all silence. And the way that you know that the first movement has begun and ended is because he lifts up the cover of the keyboard and then puts it down and waits a minute. And and that's a famous piece by by Cage. And there are people that think that's a total scam, that that is just sort of avant-garde posturing, that, you know, this idea that you can, you know just go up on stage and, and pretend to play art and you're getting one over on the public. And they sort of, they didn't really hear what Cage had to say about it or hear what was really going on in that piece. He, he didn't put music, traditional music, in that piece because he wanted people to actually think about the sounds that are ambient and, and every day that create a kind of an ongoing background music that we all experience. But the funny thing is I just heard recently that somebody did a very similar piece called Six Minutes of Silence. And the Cage estate sued them for copyright infringement. (laughs) Sued them for using silence.
1: That's a good one.
0: (laughs) But yeah, that happens, you know, all the time. Well, a round of applause. Thanks for coming, you guys. Thank you.